Coming up next, the bookening reads Richard the Second. Everybody, it's Nathan. Didn't remember what play we're doing. We're not doing the Hunchbacked of Notre Dame. Of Notre Dame, no. It's not even <laughs> a play. Hunchbacked of Notre the, Dame. The yeah. Hunchbacked of Notre Dame. You guys have never. Uh, you know what? Fun fact. What? Cannot stand Victor Hugo. I have a lot of trouble reading that. Hey, guy. fun fact. Me too. Me too. Hashtag me too. Yeah. There you go, Jake. Your thoughts. Um, that's a weird connection to make. I've never read Victor Hugo. I, we'll I have, didn't mind the Disney movie back in the day, though. Yeah, Disney movie was cool. We'll have to try him one day. I've never, I've actually never been able yeah, to make it through like, Les Mis. I've never been able to make Frollo it through Les Mis. Or whatever. He's yeah, a, he's a bad man. He's, he is a bad man. That Frollo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care for him at all. Can we go through the <laughs> cast of characters? Of <laughs> How do you guys feel about uh, King Richard the Second? King Richard the Second. Ah, yes. Good or bad man? I was going to ask you about. Uh, Quasi and Moto, the two talking gargoyles oh. from, from the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Was that their name? Pretty sure. No <laughs> Pretty sure. Way. They were named after Quasimodo? Well, okay. That's what Google's for, I guess. Yeah. Jason I guess. Alexander in Hunchback of Notre I would look on my phone, but you banned me from using my phone. Yeah, I we, did. we got banned from using our phones because Nathan. He's a really small, petty sort of guy when it comes yeah. to this sort of thing. That's what I've noticed. I'm yeah. actually a big, petty guy. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, Hugo. It's Victor and Hugo, actually, are the name of the comic relief gargoyles that we all know and love from Victor Hugo's classic. It's. <laughs> I guess it wouldn't be Quasi and Moto. That'd be weird. <laughs> they were Quasimodo's friends. You remember there was a thing. I remember there was a thing, yeah, because I like to remember when the Disney Corporation t- wants to make cute, happy meals out of a story <laughs> about uh, whatever the Hunchback of Notre Dame is about. Guys, that's not what we're talking about. And that's, I haven't even said who we are. My name is Nathan Alberson, humble and obedient host. H and O. So very H and so very O. H no H. Humble and obedient host. Uh, Brandon, yeah. you are uh, so fat. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> you're moderately fat. It's Brandon Chastain. He's arguably in better shape than I am. Yet I use the power of people's imaginations <laughs> against him. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but this is really a podcast about the power of imagination. So that's why we do it. And it illustrates the point. And he's Brandon Chastine. And he's the scholar who's a baller of reading ghosts. <laughs> that you're fat, I guess. Oh, okay, I don't thank you. <laughs> the, when, you're, when you're the host of a podcast, you can abuse your... Hey, let's... It's Jacob Menzel. The yes, fattest true. of all of us. <laughs> <laughs> that big fat slob. Jake Menzel. Wow, are the powers of imagination so great that we could make people think you're fat, Jake? Because, spoiler alert, he's actually pretty not fat. No, he's he's in good shape. But we could use people's imaginations to make them think. We can try. You know what? Let's put a wart on his head. <laughs> hey, Brandon, yeah. what do you think about the old wart on <laughs> Sir Wartzelot over there? It's pretty distracting. It's, it's really distracting. <laughs> Especially that hair that comes out of, right of, out of the middle of it. The hair that comes out right out of the middle yeah, of it. Right. The hair yeah. comes out of the middle of the wart? Yeah. Yeah. Just one hair. Yeah. You want to just pull the wart off. Confusing warts and moles, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. Mole is a furry little creature that digs holes. (laughs) Yeah. And a wart is the name of the guy in um, 
sort of the okay, uh, okay. So, on the count of three, you guys are both going to say exactly where this mole is. Okay. Okay. One, two, three. The Jake's left, face. Yeah, the left side of his face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could probably narrow it down. Yeah. One, two, three. Forehead. Four <laughs> <laughs> That's how me and Brandon talk when yeah. we both have to say an obvious piece of information that we know. <laughs> Guys, are the, I think the new listeners are probably gone. So we can get into it. We Yay. can get into it. Richard the Second by Shakespeare. Old Billy S. Brandon, any context we need to know about this particular PLAY? Outside of what we already did last episode? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we can remind people. Yeah. Uh, where this falls. This is in his second period in the mid 1590s. This would have been when he was be- he was becoming an established playwright, but before his final period when he would do all the major um, tragedies. And so much ado about nothing, other plays, plays like that. This was what he was writing during this period. One of the distinguishing marks of this play is that it's written entirely in poetic meter and blank verse. As opposed to what? Isn't Shakespeare all poetry, Brandon? No, as opposed to rhyming um, couplets. And so a lot of the poems, like guys like Thomas Kidd and Chris Marlowe, would have written mainly in rhyming couplets, especially heroic couplets, where... It was iambic pentameter, and each line would rhyme, and you'd have two rhymes, and you go on to the next rhyme, and Shakespeare doesn't really do this, except in some notable exceptions in this play. Like when Henry takes the throne, um, he starts to rhyme. But to that point, he didn't. But you said it's all poetry. <clears throat> it is all poetry because it's uh, blank verse in the sense, so it's poetry in the sense that every line is divided into 10 syllables, and those syllables are then further divided into five feet, and each foot consists of two syllables. And that syllable's called an iam, or that foot's called an iam because it, it, the foot is made up of a unstressed syllable and then an, a stressed syllable, and that's called an iam. So da 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 da. That is. So if we read actually a passage, I can pull up one here for you. You mm-hmm. can hear it. Old John of Gaunt, time honored Lancaster. You hear it? Mm-hmm. Hast thou, according to thy oath and band, brought hither Henry Hereford, thy bold son? Here to make good the boisterous late appeal, and so there's a little bit of uh, alteration to make it interesting in the meter there, but which then our leisure would not let us hear. So you can hear the stress, unstress, and of course you're not supposed to say it like that, but that's just making it so people can really hear it. Right. But also the lines at the end are not rhyming, and so you have the iambic pentameter, but he got rid of the rhyme so that it sounded more like natural speech, but still lofty. That's that's like an innovation of Shakespeare's? It was an innovation of Shakespeare's to at least use this predominantly throughout his plays. (laughs) And then like, if you look throughout a lot of the lines that, so you'll have someone who might say something and it'll be four syllables. So the next person will respond and it might be six syllables, but together they create the iambic pentameter line. Right. So what would a non-poetic line in another Shakespeare play sound like well we can do we nobody has a copy of romeo and juliet on them do they i do not let's see we can find biggest distinguisher is going to be that iambic pentameter blank verse is will be more for the noble Mm -hmm. more for the tragic figures in later tragedy and anytime you have lower class people in her so think midsummer's night dream bottom and his friends Bottom and his friends, they're going to be speaking just in direct prose. Right. They're not going to have blank verse. That's because, yeah, the blank verse sounds a bit less. Sounds more regal. Sounds more, more regal. That's what I'm thinking as I'm trying to find. More a, formal. Example from, here we go. 
Romeo and Juliet. More elevated. More elevated. All right. Here's the nurse speaking. Well, sir, my mistress is the sweetest lady. Lord, Lord, when t'was a little prating thing. Oh, there is a nobleman in town, one Paris, that would fain lay knife aboard, but she, good soul, had as lief see a toad, a very toad to see him. It's just less formal. Just talking. There you go. And this play primarily, almost entirely concerns itself with the noble people, and they all speak in poetry. Yes, and so you get none of the prose relief that you get with some of the other uh, plays. This is all very high speech, very formal, and you can feel it with this play. This is one of the more serious plays. Even looking at some of the later tragedies, like with Lear, you had at least The Fool. Right. You have the grave digger. Yeah, and so you get those moments of relief from the tension, but here it's pretty escalated the whole play. Right. So in some ways I think that probably makes this a, a less mature play. Less mature, but more fun, maybe? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, yeah. It was more fun for me than, uh, this was probably the most fun I'd had with, I've had with Shakespeare so far. On so the this book is your me. favorite Shakespeare play? Well, Brandon, that's not what I said. <laughs> it's the most fun you've had with Shakespeare. Yeah, no, this is not my favorite Shakespeare play. Come on. But this is the most fun I've had with Shakespeare on the booking. This okay. is the most I've just enjoyed myself watching a Shakespeare play. And I think some of Which that... Which is to say that you really enjoyed a performance more than a play, though, right? I think so. Although we watched a good Macbeth with Patrick Stewart. Yeah. We also watched a crummy Macbeth with, what's his face, Fassbender. Yeah. But I think we've watched some good Shakespeare performances, but... I think I do like this play quite a bit. I like the linear nature of it. I like that it's simple. I like that there's a handful of things that happen. Well, and Richard II's an interesting character. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, and Shakespeare does some interesting things with him. Yes, so. he does. And we'll talk about that. Let's also, I really oh, think yeah. that, I mean, I didn't watch any other adaptations of, I think this is the first Richard II that I've ever seen. Yes, I think and it's I, for me too. And it's thus far the only Richard II that I've ever seen. But as I watched it, I kept imagining how many versions of Richard II out there are played like a schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. Right. That has to be true. Have we, we should say, we watched The Hollow Crown. Oh, I, I don't, we, didn't, we might not have said I that. I don't think we've said that. So we watched The Hollow Crown, people. Yeah. By the British Broadcasting Company mm-hmm. or Corporation, whatever it is, the BBC. And yeah. It's the one that Sam Mendes produced, and it's got, we watched the first season, and we specifically, for our, apropos our purposes today, watched Richard II, starring Ben Whiteshaw. You yep. may know him as Q in the new- Is that how you say his name? Whitshaw. The guy from, that plays Q in the new James Bond movies, and played yeah, Mr. Plays... Poppins in uh, Penguins. No. What am I saying? Mary Poppins Mr. Returns. He played Michael Banks. Yes, he played Michael Banks. And Mary Poppins Returns. And Mary Poppins Returns. And he was pretty good. The movie was He's in less Paddington, good than him. I think. He is yeah. Paddington. He is the bear. He's the bear. He's the bear. And those are pretty good movies. Those are good movies all except for Mary Poppins Returns. Which Nathan yep. did not like. I did not like it. I also didn't like yeah. it. Holding out for Mary Poppins Forever and Mary Poppins and Robin. Uh, <laughs> Mary Poppins Begins. You can do this. All. Actually, that's probably the last thing that I can do that with. That's the last Batman title that I can swap out Mary Poppins with. Really? Yep. Because the Dark Knight. Well, I don't mean. I guess Mary Poppins Rises. Mary Poppins v Superman: Dawn of Justice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You do Mary Poppins Rises. Mary Poppins Rises. No, but that was the Dark Knight. Oh, it'd be the the White Witch Rises. The White Witch Rises. (laughs) The White Witch Rises, (laughs) which would be cool. We'll talk about that in our Narnia series. Yeah. So we watched this BBC version, and it was fantastic, right? Yeah, it was really great. It was great. What is there to say about it? I don't know. It's so. Well, I mean, 
what I was alluding to, I guess I should just explain right. for the for the listener. Ben Wishaw, Wishaw, I don't know how to say his name. Let's go with Wishaw for the purposes of the podcast. Yeah, that's I, how I've I think that's said correct, it, yeah. yeah. Ben Wishaw plays Richard, and what he does is he gives us a Richard that is completely effete and mm-hmm. debauched, mm-hmm. but also is full of pathos and able to have real dignity right. and grace in the moments where he needs it. And uh, he pulls together this very sad but realistic character who's able to deliver these big grand speeches and also play this uh, debauched king that really does need to be deposed. Right. But also it's sad. And he does have a claim to the throne. And he's going to be voicing some real tragic things uh, as he goes about it. Pulls it all together and it doesn't feel schizophrenic at all. It feels like it's all (laughs) of a piece and it's just a really, really brilliant performance. Makes you wonder why the guy only ever plays a stuffed bear or a Foppish kind of. I want to see him in the in more complex roles. You know, he'll be playing Uriah Heep in the new David Copperfield. Yeah, I heard about that. That's that's interesting. Uriah Heep, Heep, hard character to play, easy character to make slimy and over the top and like unbelievable. Well, that's the kind of challenge that you would think that Ben Wishaw would be up for. That Richard the Second would be the kind of character that would be really easy to play as a slimy, gross person who then couldn't really pull off the kind of tragic speeches with the dignity and grace that you want them to, right. or it would be a poser of a, or he would just have to be schizophrenic or, you know, right. really uniting the, those aspects of that character in one seamless character. It just seems like a really brutal challenge. Right. Well, and that's my constant complaint or not complaint, but just observation. When we do Shakespeare, I do not understand. Just Everybody always says Shakespeare's the great psychologist. He had every person, every person that ever lives has a Shakespeare character that's like, and I think that that's true. And yet, when I tackle some of the big things like Macbeth, I'm like, how is this supposed to track? How did Shakespeare intend for it to track? It's not clear. Like, one moment he's this really powerful, regal guy, and then Macbeth's kind of a thug at a certain point, and you get it. You, you get the big picture trajectory. Each moment lands. But the connective tissue, sometimes Shakespeare just maybe didn't bother with. I don't know. Or maybe it's the performance. It's certainly... To- the idea of psychological realism is very different right. than our idea of psychological realism, where right. we expect to track with a character's emotional arc point by point by point by point by point by point by point, and it all needs to be spelled out for us. And right. Shakespeare will just jump. And Richard clearly is one of those plays that in lesser hands would have felt really disconnected and schizophrenic, I think. And that was the marvel of watching this performance as my first experience of this play. Watching Wishaw pull this all together, have it feel completely psychologically real. Mm -hmm. Right. It makes sense. And also know that he's walking, like to be able to see that he's walking on a knife's edge, that the real joy of the play for me, was watching him dance on the knife's edge and, and not slip. Well, I thought I've, I've watched it twice now. And what I noticed this time was he does something really clever, which is early on, he observes himself as he does some of the lines. He'll sort of give this self-satisfied little laugh or give a look. There's certain lines. There's a line. I, I wrote some of it down. Forget, forgive, conclude and be agreed. Our doctors say this is no month to bleed. He delivers that, and then he, he just like he, he he gives a little chuckle, 
right? And you could say that that's over the top, but what it really does is it creates this effete character who enjoys the performance Mm -hmm. aspect of being the king, right? Who likes to be florid and indeed who seems to be stuck being florid. He's one of those people that would rather talk than act, which is I'm sure what people say about the character because the more he's trapped, the more florid and over the top and poetic his language gets. Mm -hmm. Um, But Ben Wishaw really sets that up nicely by seeming to be amused early on by the things that he says and by the clever little lines that he's given. And And then all he has to do is lose himself a little bit. Right. Be hit with real tragedy and grief and forget himself. Right. Yeah. That is clever slight of, that's a, that's really clever. I yeah. hadn't thought, I hadn't processed it that way. But the, the the minute you say that, I'm remembering. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, well, it's especially evident in the famous the beach scene. It's a beach in them. I don't remember whether it's actually set on a beach in Shakespeare, but in the movie it is where he finds out he's basically been deposed, and he starts out giving this long. It's speech. the coast of Wales, the castle. In yeah, here. that is. Yeah, the... that's a brilliant piece of acting. Yeah, and he's able to be arrogant at the beginning and say, you know, it's my divine right to be a king. And then he's in despair and making all his followers crazily sit down on the beach with him so that they can be all existential and mopey by the end of it. And he manages to make all that, to pack all that in and make it not feel hashtag schizophrenic, which is a a neat trick. But I think because he's been given these kind of cues where he performing the playing the part a little bit, you kind of understand that this person is florid and when they break, they break in a, he breaks in, in a, in a florid way. You know, you kind of, yeah, but what, what becomes, what was really shallow and superficial suddenly becomes real. Right. But it feels like the same guy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Who's been hit with something hard. Right. He did a good job. Yeah, he did a great job. Sorry. I'm looking at this. So one thing that I think that Wishaw really captures well like you guys were saying, but is this tension that King Richard, I think is portray or Shakespeare is using King Richard to portray the mm-hmm. difficulty of having to be this person who's supposed to be the body of the King, but also the body of the nation. Right. Mm-hmm. right? And so you have your own self, but then you also, that self is supposed to represent England. Right. And so a lot of the, the well, some of the interesting imagery they used in this performance, I'm not saying that Shakespeare said to do it this way, but they use a lot of the gold colors and stuff that especially yeah. would be used to portray Elizabeth later mm-hmm. in her sort of regalness. People talk a lot about, or critics talk a lot about how Shakespeare, even when he's trying to praise Elizabeth, still finds ways to criticize her. Mm-hmm. And using this to show that tension that she must have also been under. Right. Because there's an amazing scene in the Hollow Crown, and it's not, it's where he comes out on top of that castle. Right. Yep. And he's dressed Yep. Yeah. Very similar to what Elizabeth would be. Like, mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact outfit he was wearing. It's whites and golds. Yeah. yeah. And so, and he's trying to look like an icon, basically. Right. Yeah. It's this kingly icon that's up there. And when they see him, they say, see, King Richard doth himself appear as doth the blushing discontented sun from out the fiery portal of the east. And so those are the colors they choose for him. Then also there's the amazing scene where they go into his tent. Mm-hmm. And it's all these golds and stuff, and there's the monkey right, for yeah. some reason. The monkey's just watching, and the so whole it time. gives this sense of the Orient or the East, which was smart on their part because at that time that would have represented mystery and also lavishness at the right. same time. Mm-hmm. And so here he is, and also a, kind of an element of paganism as well, right. because here's this guy pretending to almost pretending to be a deity. What's interesting about Richard II, and I think it's there, but. 
What's great about Shakespeare and when you watch it performed with a great actor is that they can pick up on these things that you haven't yeah. noticed before. Mm-hmm. And so I think what... A great actor and a great director. Yeah. That's not... yes, right. The director, and, the director and actor here, they picked up on this sense that Richard really is unable to deal with that idea of the king representing something more than himself. And right. So that it goes to his head and makes him mad. And it, he's like poeticizing it and... uh, making it into this metaphor Mm -hmm. that he doesn't know how to deal with. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what happens if someone who should have probably been an artist or a poet becomes king? (laughs) And this is, it drives them bonkers. Well, I actually found him, at least as we we saw a play, I think as Shakespeare wrote him, I found him pretty relatable, actually. Mm -hmm. Just as uh, I couldn't help but process it as a new husband. Anytime I've had to bear any kind of an authority authority in my life, I don't know. It, it has a lot of wisdom. It gets at some stuff. Like he won't, he doesn't want to choose between these two guys. He wants to let them both off the hook, and then when they won't let him, let, he punishes them both. And that to me does not feel like one of those arbitrary setups that often happen in much ado. You know, like in in Shakespeare, much ado. But well, you can't marry her, or you'll die. You know, it's like well, this is the plot point we needed to get things going. Mm-hmm. That to me feels really like I get it. I get why he did it. And it's a crummy decision, but it's the kind of crummy decision that I've had bosses make for me and I've resented and the kind of crummy decision that I'm tempted to make where you're like, I don't actually want to have to choose a side. And so I'm going to try and play both sides and it just does not work. It's the dangers of weakness and effeminacy. I I thought that was an interesting way that Shakespeare set up that tension or the um, central fight between right. the two guys. What was the other guy you had? Bolenbroke and Bolenbroke then and, uh, York, Thomas Malbury. Yeah. Well, and one thing that the movie excluded, which is an interesting choice that kind of changes the play a little bit, is they're all talking around the fact that Richard II actually had somebody killed. It's either, it's maybe it's Malbury's father. Yeah, so Richard is always pretend, or at least trying to act like he's this great king, and he even has the air and the dignity of what we would expect a great king to have. Right. And yet then he's disconnected from his people. He's mm-hmm. not really a ruler. He doesn't really make good decisions. And then when he does make decisions, they're often selfish or like what he does with John of Gaunt after he dies. Right. It makes Bolingbroke mad. Mm-hmm. He goes and he just takes everything. And so he is a, a tyrant in that right. sense. But what's really, oh, it's also, I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about this. What makes this play interesting is that even though he is a tyrant, it's still, you don't still you still don't feel that what Bolingbroke does is right. Right. Well, that's an interesting thing because I researched it a little bit and most modern scholarship paints Bolingbroke as a Machiavellian schemer who from page one of this play intends the throne for himself, wants to get rid of Richard, just doesn't want the blood on his hands. So he's playing it really cool and he's saying all the, making all these speeches about bending the knee every chance he gets, but actually... The only thing that he wants is the crown. It's actually more in line with the way that you would think of Jeremy Irons portraying the character in the second mm. of the hollow crown. The guy leaves it really ambivalent who plays it in this particular version. Like he always kind of looks like he doesn't want it. And the text allows for that. I don't think. No, I don't think you have to read Bolingbroke as a schemer. And I kind of liked the way that they did it for this. I really liked it. Oh, I love yeah. that guy. I was actually disappointed when they replace him with Jeremy Irons, which is a neat trick if you, you can be disappointed with Jeremy Irons, but yeah, that yeah. says something about that guy. But it's really unclear. It's really fascinating. Like when they have their final confrontation in the castle there, when Richard shows up, 
he says all these things about how he's going to bow to Bolingbroke, and Bolingbroke says, no, I'm going to bow to you. And then Richard is taken away to the tower, but Bolingbroke never really pulls the trigger on it. Like you never hear yeah. him say, I checked the play to make sure this matched up with the movie. Uh, he, he, he never just takes the reins, takes the horse by the reins and says, we are going to put Richard in prison. We are going to have him killed. And yet everything keeps going his way for him to be king. The, the way the actor played it, he left it open slash almost nudged you towards thinking the guy really just wanted to redress some wrongs and ended up being pushed onto the throne. Yeah, and maybe felt a little torn about it. Maybe felt like on the one hand, he shouldn't do this. And on the other hand, it was his responsibility to do it, right. to take it, receive it. Mm-hmm. It's just more fun when there's ambiguity and those kinds of things. Maybe, I don't know. I I definitely think there is a kind of person that wants to do the right thing, wants to honor the God-given authorities, wants to address wrongs and strive for what's just and good. And things do tend to naturally fall that guy's way. It's sort of what king david does and, right i was reminded of king david quite a right bit. david's not going to use usurp saul but he is going to be out on the borderlands protecting people yeah. and all of that's going to accrue in terms of goodwill to david and help set up and make it possible for everybody to want to crown david like right. david's being the king that saul should be right while refusing to usurp saul and yet that in and of itself is in God's providence, its own sort of usurpation. Right. Like it is its own subversion. Simply by being a good and righteous man who loves the people, honors the king, and is out doing the work of protecting the people and plundering the Philistines, like that all accrues to David and it comes back to him in the end. And then you find David being in this in similar situation. With Absalom. Well, even before Absalom, right? You know, the guy comes back and is going to boast of Saul being killed in battle. Right. And David's, on the one hand, this is David's enemy who's tried to kill David many times. And this is a relief to everybody in the court, including David himself. Right. For David to pretend like it wasn't something of a relief, I think would be wrong, but he's still going to grieve and mourn over it. And when the guy claims... He has him executed. That dude's mm-hmm. dead. Right. How dare you touch the Lord's anointed? And and Shakespeare's obviously playing with that sort of thing here with right. Bolingbroke. He is setting it up to look and feel sort of that way. It, we could spend a lot of time drawing connections between Richard and Saul and mm. David and Bolingbroke. Oh, absolutely. And that is... 100% intentional, I think, and mm-hmm. it's going to have to be. But David, that kind of thing does continue with David, right? The things, Absalom takes over, David leaves the city. Shimei is cursing him. David doesn't want to punish Shimei. David mm-hmm. just wants to submit to the Lord's discipline. They get the fights to go into battle. Don't touch Absalom. And yet, Absalom has to die. And then Joab kills Absalom. And then David's mourning, and it sets everybody, wait, isn't this what we wanted to happen? Those kinds of things happen. You know, you feel bad for... Saul, but then he is the bad guy. Right. And you love Saul and you feel sympathy for Saul. And he was the first king. He was in a hard position. And he, but he's still the bad guy by the end of the story. Mm-hmm. David is the good guy. It is a shift from one king to the next king. Saul was king by divine right. Mm-hmm. And so was David. David was anointed king while Saul was still reigning by divine right. It's complicated and it's messy. And I think oversimplifying that and turning it into a uh, Machiavellian power play on Bolingbroke's part 
is probably to really misread what Shakespeare was doing and to re misread uh, what was inspiring him in terms of what he was working with. I think that this play probably, this performance probably really actually gets it right. I think so too. I think I'm just, I just talked myself into it. Right. Well, I think it's a very tricky thing to talk about, but I think people have to understand that in the real world, and indeed in the world as God ordered it, respect, obedience, and subversion can actually all exist at the same time in the same person. And it's a really complicated, tricky thing to have to talk about. And I don't want to make space for our listeners to go and be rebellious. But if anyone's ever, for example, been in a job where the big boss says, here's the vision for the company, here's what we're going to do. And then the middle manager says, we're going to do this. And that actually contradicts what the big boss says. Who do you, who do you, who do you obey? I've been in those situations. You guys mm-hmm. have probably both been in these situations in your life. And I'm sure some of our listeners have. And what you'll find is you end up respecting the company, respecting the boss, obeying the boss, and subverting the rules all at the same time. And it's complicated. I'm sure there's some people thinking, well, that's that sounds like Nathan just doesn't like authority. But no, that's not really what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm not making space for a rebellion here. I'm making space for the fact that God puts us under certain dispensations of authority, be it our husbands, our fathers, our pastors, our bosses, asks us to respect them, asks us to love them, asks us to obey them, and then asks us to be wise. Well, I mean, the fact is even our, there's a long tradition in American civil politics of understanding certain forms of disobedience, of civil disobedience as part of the process of being a good citizen. It's deeply rooted in, and people abuse this all the time, Sure, but it's deeply rooted in uh, the DNA of America that you have an obligation to the authorities above you to reject their unjust laws. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially when they're spending all their money on gold tents and monkeys and right. <laughs> taking the money from recently deceased noblemen. Right. Unfairly without their cause. Whole so, families, yeah. So well, and potentially murdering someone else's, which is an aspect, like you said, was kept out of this. But yeah, I think that uh, there's enough haunting Richard II, which is interesting because then the death of Richard II, the way he dies, will go on to haunt the rest of some of the Henry plays as well. Right. Uh, this doesn't go away. Well, that's the additional layer of complication <clears throat> that we could add to what we were just talking about, which is you sometimes respect obedience and subversion will all exist, all in some sense feel necessary, and then God will still discipline you for the Absolutely. elements. The subversion, yeah. The subversion. And it's just, it's just complicated, and I think only, only God can sort it out. To give a really, to take a step back in case people still don't know what we're talking about, I just thought of a really blatant, stupid example. But let's just say, dad's a good dad. He gets drunk one night. He's going to beat the little kid. His wife says, no, don't beat the little kid. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to call the police. This is an ex- this is a very simple example of someone subverting someone's immediate authority in order to uphold the higher standard of right. their actual authority. And, and and I think the wife could properly say it in that circumstance, I'm obeying you, big picture. Even I'm though you're, honoring my husband. I'm honoring by my not husband. allowing him to do this wicked thing. Yeah, I am honoring the position that is my husband. Obviously, there's all kinds of ways to abuse this, but it is something that people under authority find themselves having to do. And so when Bolingbroke, for example, says, I'm executing these two guys, which, uh, what is it, like Baggy and Greenberg or something like that? <laughs> Bushy. Bushy. Um, Bushy and Green. Bushy and Green. He's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have these guys killed. 
And we all know it serves balling purposes to have these guys killed. But he gives a speech about how he's doing it in honor and to protect the interests of Richard II. And I believe that both things can be true and yeah. probably would be of a character like that. If, if Bolingbroke's the man that I take him for, the man that I think Shakespeare wrote and that this actor performed, I think both things are happening. And I think... It's definitely the way you fill in the performance. Yeah. Yeah. Is that it's not completely unjust that these guys are losing their heads. No. No, it's no. more than just. These guys are, yeah. are in fact... Leeches on the king. They're, they're, they're corruptors of the yeah. king. Right. And in a sense, Bolingbroke, you could say, is they're, obeying uh, the man that the king should be. They're like Wormtongue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get rid of Wormtongue, man. Yeah, should have killed Wormtongue. <laughs> We're not going to answer the question of should they kill it. We're not going to address that until y'all get us up to $1,000 a month and we uh, get to dress up as swans. Get to dress up as swans and, and do an entire episode talking about Tolkien's justice. Yeah. I think the other thing you have to understand about this is that I think a lot of modern readers may take it for granted, granted that Shakespeare doesn't or that one shouldn't believe in the divine right or appointment of kings. But the backdrop for all of this is that Shakespeare and his, uh, I was going to say listeners, because that's who listens to us, but Shakespeare and his playgoers would have very much understood that their monarch was appointed by God, was a bit of a god herself or something like that, right, Brandon? Yeah, the the idea would have been that you have, so I mentioned before, you have the body of the king, then you have the body, body politic, and that in the body of the king, <clears throat> or the queen in her case, she had basically the spirit of England was one mm-hmm. way of looking at it within her. And that she, she was to be a living representative of England while on earth. And so she would have had this almost divine status. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the same as like an emperor who was a literal deity. Right. But they were supposed to have this extraordinary symbolic weight on them. Um, and so have you ever seen the movie Elizabeth? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Kate Blanchett thing, yeah. Yeah, they capture this moment really wonderfully where she has to establish her authority. And so the way she chooses to do it is she comes with that huge white ruffle and then her face is painted completely white and she's like in this gold outfit. And that's that's a famous moment in history because here she chooses to establish herself as like the living symbol of England on earth. Right. As the communication between God's authority given to the queen and then the people. You don't just oppose it, right? Like yeah. it's you yeah, don't just uh, oppose it. Yeah, it's not you don't sorry, just I lost elect track it. of the question. Yeah, sorry, you don't you don't just elect a new one. Like no, that's right. You don't just elect a new one, and that's why lineage was so important mm-hmm. because it does. It, what mattered was the family that had been given this authority more than you can't just take it for yourself. Right, right. This is something that has to be vested by the state. This is something we don't see in America or by the church. Or, or by the church. Yeah, we don't feel that in America because that's not how our politics work. Right. But you still see that weight in things like there's that new show about Victoria, mm-hmm. right? Or there's also one about Queen Elizabeth II, the weight of having to take that authority on themselves and the whole coronation, the symbolism involved with that, the heavy weight of it, the ceremonial ritual of it. Yeah, it's what C.S. Lewis talks about in his essay on the epics when he says solemne, that solemnity that's full of meaning. Mm. So yeah, you don't just oppose it. No. If you do just oppose it, then, yeah. You, well, you do it with fear and trembling, which is, at the very least, what Bolingbroke presents, what he has to present to people, however you want to read him, is that I'm not doing this lightly. And yeah, because he knows that. It's not just because I have a personal beef. He can't just make himself the symbolic representation of England. Right. Mm-hmm. He's not going to have that weight. And he becomes Henry the fourth. fourth. Yeah. Even then, he has some trouble, like, trying to still, it's not like Henry the fifth. 
kind of has that because now he's a Henry right. in the lineage of Henry's. But Henry Bolingbroke is always going to have some of that doubt throughout his reign. And he kind of just has to take it and establish himself that way. Which is interesting that Shakespeare points this out because he's dealing with a house. It was a new sort of established house anyways that had a bloody early history like with Bloody Mary and all that mm -hmm. stuff in Henry VIII. And it was already a house that was unstable. And so Elizabeth was already dealing with that and those sorts of doubts over her throne. So in other words, Shakespeare wasn't just a brown noser. <laughs> right. We can say that, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On a completely unrelated topic, my favorite part of the play this time was this random part between uh, Gaunt, who Patrick Stewart played, and Henry Bolinbroke, where uh, Bolinbroke's being exiled. Gaunt says, Suppose the singing birds musicians, the grass whereupon thou treadest thy presence strawed, the flowers fair ladies, and thy steps no more than a delightful measure or a dance. For gnarling sorrow hath less power to bite than the man that mocks at it and sets it light. And I was like, ah, that's pretty nice. And then Bolingbroke comes back with, Oh, who can hold a fire in his hand by thinking on the frosty caucuses, or cloy the hungry edge of appetite by bare imagination of a feast, or wallow naked in December snow by thinking on fantastic summer's heat? Oh no, the apprehension of the good gives but the greater feeling to the worse. I just thought that was cool, because the one character was like, just believe it and you'll have it. And then the other character was like, nope. That's not, how life, that's, works, that's not how life works, idiot. That's not how life works, idiot. Which I just, <laughs> I really enjoyed. I don't know what else you guys want to talk about about this play or about this movie. It was a really beautiful movie. It looked like it was Botticelli was like the production designer or something. Yeah, it was really nicely done. Uh, nicely done. They did gay it up a little bit with, they, they really went for with the Richard. effete side of yeah. Richard. All, all his buddies were kind of played by beautiful young dudes and... They had some scenes where he would kind of give someone a knowing glance or put his hand All on right. their shoulder or something like that, which took a little wind out of the sails of the beautiful scene where he has to say goodbye to his wife that's being shipped off to France. Well, I'm not sure that scene was meant to have much wind in its sails, right? Was it not? Well, because of uh, it's interesting that they used effeteness as a weakness of his. Right. I don't think they portrayed it as a strength. No. no I don't think either. they. I don't even think they portrayed it as he's like unwilling to express his sexuality because he feels repressed. Right. Mm -mm. It was definitely one of his weaknesses. And that was a bad thing. Right. Yeah. And so he he was a feat. He was, that was all part of the problem. Yeah, for that to be- And Bolingbroke was strong. <clears throat> yeah. For that to be something that Sam Mendes, of all people, is willing to- Because he's the American Beauty guy, right? American Beauty, also Road to Perdition. Which and is good. Skyfall. And... Did you like Road to Perdition? Yeah, Road to Perdition is good. Sam Mendes is a classicist, I think. I think yeah. he likes- as much as anything, I think he just likes a nice, clean composition. But the fact that they pulled out the effeteness as a weakness. The point of contrast. It really is the point of contrast yeah. right. between him and Bolingbroke. Is... Bolingbroke is a man of action who, like, he gets kicked out of the country. He comes back with a giant army. like Even down to, I think, some of the symbolism of, so Richard is just going to be a down-to-earth. He's going to be a king, and he's going to have the authority, and he will feel like a king. Richard had to pretend to be a king. So and you mean Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke yeah. did. He's going to be a king. He's not going to, it's not going to be gold and white. That's what I meant, yeah. It's Who not, did I say? Did you I say? said Richard. Sorry, said, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not going to be gold and white. He's going to look like a dude. Yeah. Right. But he's going to look like a dude that you'd be afraid to meet in battle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But Richard, on the other hand, he has to color himself up. He has to do the weird iconography, even. The way so, he moves has yeah. to be. Like, so they had the. Uh, Set crucifixion yeah. statue or icon throughout. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then when Richard dies, they play up the fact that he has the arrows exactly like 
right. that figure with like the blood. Saint, it's Saint Sebastian. That or Saint the, Sebastian, yes. The arrows, yeah. Because okay, they start with Richard painting a picture and he's got some guy posing for him that has fake arrows, arrows and yeah. stuff. Yes, and, that's right. So, okay. Well, either way, even when he's dying, I don't think they're trying to say that he was another Saint Sebastian. No. I think that what the, I think that what the director and chose to do there is that's Richard, even in his death, feeling like he has to be this actor of this iconography. Like this is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's playing a part even then in his death. Well, so. the, um, the incandescent Meredith walked in at the very end of me watching this and she had two comments. The first one was, oh man, is everything melodramatic with this guy? And it was the scene where he was giving away the crown. And of course that scene goes on for like four hours and it's, it's all wonderful, <laughs> but, but it just keeps going. Like He's got more and he's going to insult these guys and then he's going to look like he's going to finally abdicate and then he's going to have another big poetic speech. They kept going and so she said, does everything have to do be melodrama? And then she said, boy, this guy really likes to think that he's Jesus. Yeah. And then she walked out of the room. And, well, she got him, yeah. Yeah, she she, she got it. <laughs> but I think Shakespeare understood that too. So. I, I will say they ladled on, I thought they ladled on the Christ imagery a little thick, they, especially at the very end when he's lying in his coffin and they pan up and it's to an actual... <laughs> crucifix or something i'm mm. like all right guys we get it but that's a very minor criticism of a very great production uh i don't know anything else patrick stewart's always fun patrick yeah. stewart is he was a great gaunt yep he was a great gaunt it's nice when you can cast patrick stewart in a film that you'll forget that he's in not because he did a bad job but because it was such a minor role like mm -hmm. i forgot that patrick stewart was in this film i did not remember it until i watched it again i don't remember if i said on mic or not but you know watch this thinking we were doing this in August. And... and then you guys had to go and make us do Narnia. Yeah. And then you had to go and take it away from us. Um, Maybe you'll go back and give it back to us. Yeah. So we'll have to wait another. Anyhow, I was like, oh, yeah. You mentioned Patrick Stewart earlier. And it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I forgot he was even in this thing. And then he dies and somebody says, his tongue now is a stringless instrument, which is, that's what I want on my tombstone, I think. That's pretty Your cool. Your tongue now is a stringless instrument. My tongue instrument. now is a stringless instrument. That's Shakespeare. He could write it. You could write a line of dialogue. That's my contention. I don't know how you guys feel about that. I'm in agreement. What else? Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a simple play, isn't it? Like, yeah, there's there's, there's not there's Richard and Bolingbrook and well, okay, there's that weird scene. So there's that kind of out of nowhere scene at the end where the Duke of York's son is traitor, and the Duke of York drags him to or no, he gets ahead of the Duke and begs for his life from from Henry, and then the Duke of York shows up and says, "Please kill my son. You need to kill my son. He's a traitor." And then Mrs. York shows up and says, please don't kill my son if I've ever begged. And they just go back and forth. And it's the most rhyme. It's all rhyme. It's like yeah. a rap battle or something like that between these two characters, one of whom wants their son dead and the other whom wants their son. Why do you guys think Shakespeare wanted to include that? Because it it's really, at the end of the day, all about Bolingbroke's conscience at that moment. And the fact is, what he wanted us to see is that Bolingbroke is uneasy with his conscience. Hmm. about it otherwise he doesn't let the traitor go he, he does wants... let the traitor go though that's why i said otherwise he doesn't let the traitor oh yeah go. yeah sorry i'm i'm misunderstood so he lets the traitor go because he's a traitor or at least he feels like he's a traitor he feels like he's a traitor yeah. or he feels like maybe well, he's a traitor or he feels like also... if he's gonna have mercy and live in the sun then you know he had better bestow mercy as well yeah right he also bestows it on carlisle the uh the yeah. priest that invokes against him that's a nice opening to the par uh, parallel to the opening of the play where you had Richard faced with a decision. 
that he had to make the, uh, the dispute between two people. Right. And now you have a dispute and you see that different king, but still same human weakness in the right. king. They're, they're, they're the obviously s- in parallel to each other. Yeah. yeah. In, but Thank at the you, be- Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> at the beginning, it's... <laughs> they're it, not, ob- not like what you said was obvious. <laughs> I was they're they're obviously in parallel. Was blowing that off. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I was agreeing with you. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah Brandon, you're right. They are obviously in parallel to each other, as you just said. Anyway, Jake, go ahead. Yeah, except that they're not actually just playing the weakness of both of the guys in perfect parallel. It's an inverse, right? What Richard does is he flippantly punishes, and what Henry does is he shows mercy, which is, if you want to take the Machiavellian standpoint, also maybe a really politically savvy thing to do at that point mm-hmm. to establish the difference between him and Richard and to establish a more of a, this is going to be, I am not a tyrant. This is going to be a reign of peace and I'm the, I'm a bigger man than this. And therefore you should all be loyal to me. It's more like uh, the difference between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam says, we should just probably just spell that one out. Rehoboam says, I'm going to, my father rip whipped you with scourges. I'm going to whip you with scorpions or something like that. Yeah, that he follows the advice of his stupid young counselors. Which like is exactly Richard what Richard II does, yeah. And that is the kind of counsel that we see Richard getting is, you know, from his stupid young fellow, count, his stupid young counselors is, well, raise the taxes, take it away from John. Got died. Let's Gaunt. seize let's all his stuff. No one, it. no one will feel let's bad about war. that. Let's do the stuff. Let's take the things. Let's you know establish. You are the king. Mm-hmm. You can do what you want. And then Henry comes and is very much the opposite of that. Well, Henry, what I loved was a line. I think I put it in my notes here. They just there's just some dudes talking about Bolingbroke, and they say he paid courtship to the common people. He took off his bonnet to an oyster wench and bowed to a brace of draymen. That says it all. This was a guy that understood that simple kindness is to the people, true condescension, good condescension from a king was going to win him everything. Yeah. Yep. And Richard II, his first And that, line, that line's actually pretty early on, right? Yeah. It's just, it's it's around the time when, I, I think it's around the time when we see Richard's buddies telling him to just crush everybody. Yeah. I think they may even say about him, like he says, well, what? how is Richard when Scornfully. he- Scornfully. Yeah. Like, oh, he does this. Like, he's nice to- everyday people and it's like well richard yeah maybe you should have learned something there yeah buddy wouldn't have been a hashtag saint sebastian <laughs> the very first line of richard here to make good the boisterous late appeal which then our leisure would not let us hear that's what he says when he's taking when the two men are coming up to get the idea that they brought this dispute before and he was too busy like playing playing yeah which kind of tells you everything you need to know <laughs> about him you guys remember the floating crown there's this weird alien floating crown in this version of the movie. Oh, there was a floating crown. There's this random shot where the cl- crown's floating, and there's nothing else quite that stylized. But yeah, I didn't understand why they had that. It's not in Shakespeare's play. <laughs> there's not a floating crown. <laughs> he doesn't. See I mean, it. I could totally see there being the, one. The crown floating. <laughs> Whither doth the crown float? Because that's how Shakespeare sounded. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> anything? Anything else no, you guys want to say pe- about Richard the Third? People should watch it. Yeah, they should watch it, read it, support it. You can buy it. The whole first season, these four episodes on like iTunes or Amazon for I think ten bucks. Yeah, I want to say it's a good deal. Somehow I got mine for like seven ninety nine or something. You do not have to spend a lot of money to watch these. No, it's a good deal. And with that, <laughs> uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this play. I thought it had a lot of wisdom. It was good, and I liked it, and it had some good language in it. First Shakespeare play that Nathan has liked. Yeah, I'm just I'm gonna I'm going on record. I liked this one. 
And I always like Shakespeare, except for that Midnight in the Garden of Good or Evil or whatever that thing oh, was Midsummer's called. Midsummer's Night Dream. Yeah. Didn't care for that. We could go watch it tonight. Oh, yeah. They're doing a thing at, um, at, at, uh, in Bloom. Guys, let's yeah. do donor <laughs> shout outs. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll alternate. So I'll, I'll, sh- I'll go to Jake. He'll say it. And then Brandon will say like a Shakespearean thing of awesomeness. And then I'll go to Brandon and he'll say it. And Jake will say it. Just like the voice. Just like the voice. Brandon, Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. That was Shakespearean. No, you gotta, you gotta get some Shakespearean awesomeness in there okay robert and Rhonda the lovebirds find the artful anthony dodger jake <laughs> the artful anthony dodger jake the artful anthony dodger <laughs> is that good Nathan? yeah <laughs> ben, ben wishaw's jealous right now <laughs> we should get you to play richard the second uh little anthony cigar store little anthony cigar store little anthony cigar store the immortal chelsea e the immortal chelsea e the immortal Chelsea E. Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Little Beam. <laughs> Beam and little <laughs> Jimmy little Oakley. Oakley. Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds. Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds. Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds. The Keith Master. The Keith Master. The Keith Master. David's Mighty Men Trucking. David's Mighty Men Trucking. David's Mighty Men Trucking. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese and C.S. Lewis even until we have faces. Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese and C.S. Lewis even until even until we have faces. I made until it until. Until. <laughs> until, <laughs> until, until it should be renamed until. <laughs> until we have faces. <laughs> All right. Beth, the beloved mother of death, has requested that her name be updated. We have a problem, and uh, the problem is by naming Nathan's beloved mother Beth, the mother of death, we have made Nathan into death. And and even though he does dress in a black robe every time he hosts. And, and, and carries a scimitar. Or a, a, a scythe. Yeah. A scythe, And yeah. a scimitar. And a scimitar. <laughs> both, I don't yeah. know why he has both, yeah. <laughs> My face is just a gaunt a skeleton It's just face. a dark this portal is... to the underworld. What are skeleton faces called? A skull. That's the word <laughs> I'm looking for. My Listen, face is a skull. What's our skeleton face is called? <laughs> Beloved Mother Beth, <laughs> we apologize to you for this bad name choice and we will call you fairy princess of wonder and happiness mother beth fairy princess of happiness and wonder mother beth oh do i do it fairy princess of wonder and happiness mother beth console prime adam console prime adam console prime adam ah you can feel the the rafter shake with jake's (laughs) shakespearean i put my heart and soul into all of my performances galactic yeah it's just the microphone that (laughs) <laughs> that ruins it somehow. It doesn't translate over the airwaves. <laughs> Galactic Princess Emily, because Jake is acting his heart out here. People yeah. should know. Did you guys see my performance of Elvish? Of El- that El- was El- amazing. Yeah, yeah, that was that was amazing. Yeah. Again, cameras really couldn't capture it. They have, yeah, we have to develop the camera that can get the nuances of your performance. Galactic Princess Emily. Galactic Princess Emily. Hawk! Galactic Princess Emily. We never Trump. knew thee. We never knew thee. Alas. We never knew thee. Alas. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> Just wait for it. Jeremy, the dark-hooded lord of death. Jeremy, the dark-hooded lord of death. Jeremy, the dark-hooded lord of death. And, of course, dark prince bear and princess bug of death doom die. And dark, <laughs> dark prince bear and princess bug of death doom die. Bug of death doom die. Nice. Now, Nathan, not me. 
Nathan, not Nathan. Nathan, not Nathan. My own. My, my own. own. Uh, Ryan the Red of oh. Hi, Maya. We need a Shakespeare for Maya. 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 <laughs> Maya. <laughs> there we go. That's so Shakespearean. Yeah. <laughs> you should, you should be Way more Shakespearean than my performances. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judo of the Ladies of Justice. Judith. Judith. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Judith. Judith. Oh, I don't want to say Judith. <laughs> I apologize for my wife being incapable of saying your guys' name. What did she say? She just couldn't get it right. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. It's easy. Yeah. It's very yeah. easy. Yeah. So easy. Yeah. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. It feels like a vocal warm up. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. DJ Sammy G. DJ Sammy G. DJ Sammy G. Wicker, wicker, wicker. Wicker. <laughs> wicker, wicker. <laughs> Drop some of those mad beats, boy. Danny and... By the pricking of my thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> Something wicker. Wicker. That's what Wicker. There it is. There you go. Very that's, nice. That's good. Jake can I'm playing along. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. Oh, those lovebirds, Eric and Catherine, from yon window breaks. (laughs) (laughs) Eric and Catherine from yon window breaks. (laughs) Maybe that should be their new name. I know we've already got lovebirds. I'm officially changing them to Eric and Catherine from yon window window breaks. (laughs) Those window breaks over there, you see them? <laughs> you guys have What's never a been window, window break? breaks? <laughs> From your own window breaks. Uh, Professor and Lady X. The name of the store. Professor and Lady X. Professor and Lady X. Nice. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan, lavender's blue. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan, Dylan I love you too. Oh, we love you, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> And the Shakespearean version. Let us count the ways. Do the ladies do that? Is that? Yeah, they changed it to that. I think that was Shakespearean right there. Yeah, that was that's 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 a Mrs. Mensel right there. Lavender's Lavender's Green, Dylan, Dylan. That's a, <laughs> that's her. Merchip, 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 Chip. All right. <laughs> this is very Shakespearean of you. <laughs> uh, the booking was written and produced by everybody and everything and it's a great show and supported at patreon.com forward slash the booking remember if you can get us just 11 more dollars we'll restart our narnia series if you can get us 11 261 dollars by halloween jake brandon and myself will dress as swans and play trumpets while marching around the courthouse in our fair town of Bloomington. We will take a video. We will march seven times. And and somewhat less importantly, we will integrate all of Tolkien's ouvroir into 2020. Right. Yeah. Which we're really excited to do. Somewhat even less importantly than that, our nonprofit ministry will have money and we will receive paychecks without having to worry about beginning of the next month yeah yeah and which would be nice yeah we like making payroll so please support us if you like this work we know there's a lot of people listening out there if you can't afford to support us then here's what you do you pick a friend any friend and you send them an email or a text that says 
pick an episode that you think this friend would like. You send him an email, a text, say, listen to this episode. Maybe the Richard the Second. Maybe your friend is a big Richard the Second fan. Yeah. Maybe they just like Shakespeare. There are lots of those out there. There are lots of those. Or you go to iTunes, you go to your podcast provider, you leave a five-star review. You do. And it goes a little something like this. Yeah. Hey. Boom. 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 Go, Nathan. Oh, wait. I thought I was dropping the beat for you. <laughs> I'm leaving the review. That's it. That's it.